Hello and welcome to East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting in lockdown in supernatural South Florida. And coming to us all the way from his haunted studio abode in scary Sweden is Mr. Kenny B. Ooh, we're going to talk about the witches and kid stuff. Ooh, <laughs> hello. Yeah. It's a, it's a it's a bit of a change, uh, but we are here to kind of talk about a thematic thing for uh, the upcoming Halloween holiday, and uh, borrowing a little bit of a page uh, from uh, Kenneth Brorson's own network, the Podcast on Fire Network, where he sometimes uh, delves into Japanese cinema with Japan on Fire. Um, mm-hmm. So we're going to be talking about uh, Kiki's Delivery Service now. For those of you listening to this, uh, I think most of you would be familiar with the very famous uh, 89 film from director Hayao Miyazaki uh, of that same name. We will talk about that film a little bit, uh, but we're going to talk about the original source material, uh, that being Eiko Kadano's uh, children's novel from 1985. And then we'll move on to talk a little bit about the live action. Yes, you heard that right. Live action Kiki's Delivery Service from 2014 from another horror spinoff, uh, that of uh, from the director Takashi Shimizu, who was known for his uh, grudge movies or the Jun-On movies, as they're sometimes known. So uh, we're going to get into that. But uh, before we do, I want to throw it over to Mr. Brorson. Sir, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? I'm sure our listeners know, but, uh, you know, plug the stuff anyway. As Stan Lee always said, uh, some, uh, you know, someone's comic book might be might be their first, so, something like that. So I'm happy to explain, um, happy to explain um, everything again. But uh, we produce a variety of Asian cinema podcasts over at the Podcast on Fire Network, whether talking Hong Kong movies, new and old, Japanese movies, whether live action or um, anime. We've been doing anime for the last uh, for the last year in a, in a variety of uh, ways. I liked the notion of producing episodes on the firsts, in our case meaning the first feature anime, which was black and white, and a propaganda movie. It was made during during the war. And then the first color anime, and then the first original video animation. And Paul Fox was kind enough to lend his expertise to those episodes. So that's what I kind of like to do. I like to have a focused coverage. But of course we do relaxed discussions about uh, Hong Kong movies and Korean movies and uh, even uh, adult-oriented movies out of Hong Kong and Taiwan. So it's... Uh, how long have we been doing that? I always forget if it's 2007 or 2008 because I don't uh, celebrate anything. So I just lose track of when the magic date was, when the ep- when episode one was up and things like that. Uh, but uh, I always find it inspiring and uh, the more... The more focus there is on a topic I'd like to hear, because I, I would like to hear a special on what was the first feature anime and what was the circumstances surrounding it. So why not try and produce something that's listenable in that regard and that you'd like to hear? So I think it's always been my motto, Paul, that uh, what do I like to hear? Let's do that. And hopefully you can create a focused program out of it. Um, I always say that I, I don't believe that much in just turning on the mics and then throwing up a three-hour Skype conversation uh, around these topics uh, online. However, there are people that are good at just uh, riffing and talking and making that engaging. I'm not. I need to plan. I need to research. I need to spend time editing. 
so uh, so there is that but uh, i find it inspiring to uh, to do uh, topical topical work yeah but uh, it's always nice also to lean back and watch something you're familiar with that you can uh, where you can pull views and notes and research out of your head a little bit uh, whether talking um, hong kong martial arts movies or hong kong triad movies so a mixture of both and i'm happy to do it but that would be nothing without the people who participate and co-host and co-produce and that would include you and don't you say anything negative about yourself right now just say thank you mr kennedy and then we put a period on that discussion <laughs> well thank you mr kennedy because I, uh... I, I know you very well like i i don't i don't contribute anything shut up yeah, uh, well, we'll get into what I can contribute and what I can't uh, in just a little bit when we start talking about our film, uh, our film, well, it's more than just a film, it's an intellectual property, I guess, uh, this week. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we jump into that, um, you know, we are still living in COVID times, and uh, one of the thoughts that I had for putting this together was, I mean, in the past, uh, for the show, we've done commentaries on uh, you know, kind of scary films and, and things on occasion. But I wanted to put out something uh, for Halloween um, that was something that uh, kind of kind of appealed to me. And I thought, you know, sure, there's a lot of horror and there's a lot of J-horror, but I really wanted to talk about this because there's um, a new English book release um, for the first book um, that's recently out this year. So I thought it'd be a prime time to sort of talk about the book and then go back a little bit to revisit the Miyazaki film and talk about the live action compiled together. And that would make a nice sort of thematic discussion uh, for Halloween. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, could you talk a little bit? I mean, it, is Halloween a thing over in Sweden? Do you guys do it or do you do it differently? Or I think increasingly it became, I guess it is still slowly morphing into Halloween that's somewhat similar to 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 American Halloween, but I think we're still at the point where decorations and Halloween parties are fine and uh, natural, and that's what you do on Halloween. But kids um, doing trick or treating, I don't think we're at that stage, and not not that we're against it, that we're against candy. But obviously, <laughs> sugar rules the world. So obviously, if there's uh, opportunity to get candy and sugar, go for it. But I don't think uh, it's reached us yet. And uh, who knows if, it, if it's even going to be commercialized and uh, be a sort of natural, that's what we do on Halloween. That's tradition. So we, when you go into the grocery store, you see, um, uh, you know, sections on that has more lanterns than usual, I suppose. That's about it. Uh, and uh, but we don't do carving uh, mm. ourselves or anything. That sounds way too messy, to be honest. And that's uh, that's craftsmanship. I don't have anyways. I would just ruin that pumpkin, and uh, it would be a rotting mess in like <laughs> two minutes. If I, if I, I mean, are you good with good with, with a knife? And can you do your favorite anime character on on the surface of a pumpkin? No, I can't. I can't. I can't actually do the you know the, the, the super competitive level carving. But I can you know hack out a few triangle eyes and a, a smiley mouth uh, every year. It's a bit of a tradition for us. You know, we, we get one pumpkin for each of us and then everybody is allowed to kind of do their own design and 
and we'll throw it out front with some lights in it. Mm. Um, and who's the, I, who's the best out of the out of the out of the unit? Kid, kid, kids or the parents? Um, you know, it depends on depends on the year. <laughs> some years, <laughs> some years we leave it to the last minute, and we're just kind of rushing to get it done. Um, because the, the the hardest part is cleaning out the sort of the guts of the pumpkin, um, and then because um, I like to get really big ones, but then the pumpkins walls. Uh, will be really thick, and you kind of kind of have to go in and and um, scrape some of the meat off of the inside of mm -hmm. the pumpkin to to get it thin enough to where you can can really carve it without just having some basic shapes there. I'm um, tired already, by the way. This sounds like way too much work. <laughs> but you know, we throw on some you know some uh, Disney Halloween stuff or or so something and just make a kind of a day of it and it's it's fun mm. but i mean That's you cool. guys you there's no like pumpkin spice you'll mist or anything like that or i'm, I'm sure there is i just <laughs> haven't looked uh, i mean the, the, the only the, the cycle of you is uh, christmas and easter right essentially but i don't know if they've um because here it's, anything. Stores, stores it's anyway. pumpkin spice everything here i mean of if you they've got pumpkin spice pumpkin spice it's that's how ubiquitous <laughs> it is now um, I, I've seen it on cereal. You've got it on coffee, tea, um, every kind of you know. There, there's cheesecake, pumpkin spice, pumpkin spice bread, pumpkin spice donuts. I mean, and I like pumpkin spice, but by the end of the season, it's like, oh, I never <laughs> want to see pumpkin spice again. I, I mean, um, it's not even for uh, the cycle. Is, isn't even four weeks. I mean, it always starts prematurely, doesn't it? Um, like yeah, you, I mean, usually like uh, when fall starts, um, but here in Florida, because we've basically got one season, which is summer, um, it's hard to say when that is. But usually when, when fall starts is when they start rolling out the, the uh, you know, the pumpkin spice branding. Um, so has, Hall, has Hallmark jumped on the Halloween angle yet? Are they doing Halloween movies? They, <laughs> they, had, like yeah, they had, they have what they call the, their fall harvest movies, um, mm. which is not quite as popular as the, you know, where they throw like 40 movies every Christmas. Um, you know, so they have like a new movie every week for four or five weeks. And then they've got a very long-running series, which was actually started as a series of Halloween-themed Hallmark movies called um, The Good Witch. And so it was like five or six movies that they did annually, and then it spun off into, um, I think they're on season six now, um, of a regular, you know, sort of 10-episode seasonal series. Um, but yeah, no, nothing competes like Christmas time. Um, and I mean, they're, they're, they've, they've been promoing their Christmas stuff throughout the entirety of the fall season. So, I mean, you know, it's like, are, are, are they even in production or are they going to rerun? No, they've got, 19s? they've got, apparently, I mean, I guess they did it a year ago. You know, they, um, they've mm. got at least a dozen or more new movies that are premiering in addition to their entire, you know, backlog of stuff, which they'll just, be you know showing on repeat um week after week after fingers week, crossed so. for mariah carey's return to the directing chair <laughs> we can only hope let's move on to talk about our topic for this week which is kiki's delivery service so a little bit of background uh, this is coming from the children's novel which was written in uh, 1985 by eko kadono um, and it's interesting because 
this is the novel that uh, Miyazaki uh, adapted his work from, and then later the live-action film also pulled from. And it, it actually started out as a single novel, but then branched off into about six in total. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the adventures of Kiki did not begin and end with uh, the Miyazaki novel. There are, in fact, um, a series of adventures that continue on. Unfortunately, and and it, what always seems to me uh, to be strange is that you get something that's very popular, um, like the Kiki title, um, and it's given this sort of like world-renowned status because of the Miyazaki film, but it doesn't seem like it will propel the original source material um, out internationally, uh, you know, especially to the English market, because the other books, um, there, there has been one adapt- adaptation, uh, an English translation that came out before this new one that came out this year, but again, it's only for that first book. Um, the other books have not gotten uh, those English translations. I'm wondering, and I haven't found anything to substantiate this yet, but I'm wondering if the new translation is going to lead to the other books getting translated as well, because I would very much like to read them, and I don't have uh, anywhere near the the level of Japanese learning to go in and, and read the original sources. And I think there'd be a, a strong interest in, in something like that. Um, this is something that predates um, Harry Potter uh, by over a decade, so... There are some a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities, obviously, and we'll talk about some of those as we uh, talk about the film. It's it's interesting, too, because, I mean, one of the, my points of criticism that I always had about the Miyazaki film was I always felt that there was more to the story. So to find out that, mm-hmm. hey, yeah, there is more to the story, we just haven't had access to it. And not even like an OVA form or anything like that uh, done by other Ghibli staff or even outside yeah. of Ghibli. It, it, it kept quiet on the anime front, I, I gather. Yeah, and I, I it's never been, um, in terms of live action, I mean, there was a musical that was uh, a musical adaptation that was created um, for it, like a sort of a stage musical. And then the live-action film, but I don't think it ever got a TV series or, as you mentioned, no OVAs. I mean, hey, Netflix, if you're listening, got prime material here for a series uh, that I mm. think would do well with kids. Um, but we, one thing we have seen is that um, the idea of the witch itself, um, the sort of the, this kind of traditional Halloween-esque iconic image of, um, you know, a female riding a broom with a black cat, sometimes a, a black outfit and pointed hat. It's it's definitely something that is kind of prevalent in Japanese culture because you'll see this image pop up in other animes, um, especially ones that are based sort of on fantasy RPGs where there are characters using magic. Um, they'll they'll often kind of go to this more traditional image. There are actual series like i'm thinking of um i think there's one called little witch academia which is on um on netflix that you can watch it's a, it's a fairly recent series um again using this sort of same kind of you know idea the same kind of aspect of you know young witches going out and going to school to get training you know tapping back into sort of the 
the Harry Potter idea, but really going back before Harry Potter here to this idea of, of the character of Kiki and her having to go out and basically learn her skill set, you know, in, in the world, um, rather Mm -hmm. than actually going to a sort of a formal training school. So, um, it's had a pretty big cultural impact, both in Japan and I think also outside of Japan to an extent, um, And, you know, as we talk a little bit about the Miyazaki film, I think fans will understand that this was at one time under the Disney umbrella because they had bought up the rights to it and they had done uh, their own dubbings for it. Um, It has since left the Disney stable and it's, I forget the new group that's picked it up, but it's been picked up by a new group of late. But even within Japan itself, um, the... The, the the cultural impact of this particular film has been fairly long lasting. Um, the part of the words in the title itself, uh, Takubin, is um, uh, basically translates as as it's listed here, um, home fast mail. Right, so it's basically the mm. sort of witch's home fast mail uh, service, and then. This becomes the trademark for Yamato Transport, a big sort of transport industry within Japan. And if you go and look up their logo, their logo, they actually um, use a black cat, sort of a mama cat carrying another black cat in its mouth. So it's, um, And they were big sponsors of the anime film version uh, when that came around, and it was kind of like this mutual... Um, idea of of self-promotion they had the gift of uh, establishing long-lasting characters studio ghibli to be put on merch but obviously it could affect society in many more ways i mean it wasn't just totoro that broke through as you explained i recently finished the new the new translation of of um the release from delacorte press one of the things that we're going to get into especially as we talk about the live action is the characterization of Kiki, um, Kiki herself, when she leaves home to do her year of training outside of home, is supposed to be 13. Um, when you look at the sort of anime-looking figure that's on the novel, doesn't look 13 <laughs> at all. Wow. So, um, so you know, there, there's that. I think if we look at the visual representations of Kiki, um, across the media. I think Miyazaki's comes the closest for me. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that going forward. What do you think that is? Why do they stray from a, a proper, genuine image of, of the child? In question? I, it, it, you know, it's it's hard to say. Maybe because um, they want wanted a character who's a bit more reflective of the character as she gets older in the later books. Okay. You know, but still, I mean, like, you know, uh, you don't put uh, the 16-year-old version of Harry Potter on the cover of the first book, right? I mean, oh. so um, it's an inter- it's an interesting choice. It's an interesting choice, but I, it, it's also you know it's not Kiki from uh, the Kiki design from the Miyazaki film, um, but it is one that's very clearly an anime influenced. Kiki, she just looks older, so it's 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 a strange choice. Did it have an earlier English translation? And when you say new translation, it's been uh, revised 
in some yeah, shape or form. It's, it's a, it's a, this is a new one that's released this year. Um, uh, the translations by uh, Emily Balistrieri, if I'm saying her name correctly. Um, and the cover illustration is by Yuta Anuda. Um, but it does mention that there was an early 2000s translation out there. Um, but I did not see that one listed anywhere um, as I was kind of researching. So I'm guessing it's a physical book, but it doesn't have like a, a digital version or an audiobook version, at least not one that I could dig up. Um, but that may be out there as well, that earlier translation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if you're looking through used books or old bookstores, you may come across that one as well. All right, so I'm going to come back and refer um, back to uh, the book from time to time as we talk about uh, the two films um, to use it kind of as a springboard for ideas that were present in her book and ideas that were borrowed from by both of the films and then things that were kind of used uh, with, uh, you know, in a creative liberties kind of fashion to add in some new ideas. So I'll talk a little bit more about some of those details as we go forward. Let's uh, take a little musical break right here and we'll come back to talk about, uh, very briefly, Kiki's Delivery Service from And welcome back. So up first, we're going to talk about a film that probably doesn't really need to be talked about in depth. I mean, it's been covered uh, to death by pretty much every famous film critic that is in existence out there writing or or on television and lots of fans over the years. That is Kiki's Delivery Service from 1989 from director Hayao Miyazaki. The story, if you don't know, uh, basically follows neophyte witch Kiki, who must leave home to train on her own for one year. She settles in the seaside town of Kokiro and finds that being a witch in modern in the modern world isn't all that easy. So, um, you know, I, I, I asked this question, is this film even critiquable at this point? Because it is... Oh, yes, it is. Because it, it is. promotes Satanism and fornication, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I think we watched different films. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this it's 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 for Miyazaki. He's considered a national treasure of Japan, and I think for anybody who's a fan of anime, at some point it, it, you will encounter him. Um, if if he's not your gateway into anime, you will at least uh, come across him very very early on. There's various versions of these that have been floating around over the years on VHS, later on DVD, now on Blu-ray and digital, of course. Even I think I may have a Laserdisc version of Totoro in my collection um, of the English language release of Totoro. I can't even say if there's a superior one because I always gravitate back towards the the Japanese. Although one of the Mm -hmm. things we were discussing for this was that um, with the Disney dub, you do get Phil Hartman, the late but great Phil Hartman as the voice of the cat Gigi, 
which was an interesting choice uh, for the time. And I think he brings a very interesting characterization to that character. I want to throw it over to you, Kenneth, and sort of get your thoughts on Kiki's delivery service. When did you encounter it? Uh, and what were your thoughts? I think I must have seen it once before I bought the Blu-ray, I think anyway, but um, I've seen it two or three times in total. And uh, even if it's not my favorite Miyazaki, I think it's pretty exemplary because it's it's for children, but it's not childish and it doesn't spoon feed you the theme of independence and growing over and over every few minutes just so that the kid kids gets it. You know, it's it's so well structured in that regard. He he can drop his theme through through verbal play and uh, visuals without overdoing it. So it's easy to be impressed uh, by his uh, treat, treatment of that because I think it it, it is a, a valid little journey about gaining independence and gaining skill and understanding of others and understanding of yourself. And it's not that. Um, it, it's obviously very well handled without being too intellectual for kids, but not uh, too simplified for kids either. He's very good and he's always been at striking that particular balance. So, so I was impressed by that during this viewing uh, in particular. And also the fact that and we, God knows we need it. It's such a kind movie. The positivity throughout this movie is something that... Uh, you know, warms the old black heart of mine <laughs> because it, it, it's wonderful when she arrives uh, in the town. I don't remember if they even named the town in the anime. They certainly do in the live action. But um, uh, regardless, uh, when she arrives at the town, I'm glad that there's no plot line here, but it is in the live action of uh, the inhabitants uh, disliking her heavily and like thinking she's Satan or something. She just arrives as a witch, says hi. People are sort of like, oh, oh my God, someone is flying. Oh, it's a witch, probably. It's a world that knows they probably stray into town every now and again, even if they, doesn't, they don't know the rules or regulations of why these young witches go into our uh, urban city every now and again. And I think that's, that's the start of that kind aura of the film that uh, means so much to me. It still means that Kiki as a character needs to, uh, this life, this year, presents a challenge. So it's not easy for her, even though she's uh, been gifted many things throughout the movie, like a room, for instance, to live in at uh, the bakery. But it's still a movie where her, it's her strength that needs to be reawakened by mostly her, but some external influence positive influence uh, of course and uh, that's something i connect to strongly it there's also uh, something i like about anime in general and, and japanese makers of anime in general is when they stray outside of japan whether they adapt something that is not japanese in the case of the wizard of oz but also here their the environments are they're european in style and uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Ghibli sent their designers, their animators to various places in Europe, including Sweden. They went to Stockholm. They went to the island of Gotland to find inspirations for this 
the buildings that you see, the the old architecture that they see, that would match what I think is a 60s setting. Would you agree with that, Paul? If this is set in around the 1960s? Um, if you look uh, at tech, tech and the I think from the tech standpoint, it it feel it feels more like it's 40s, 50s. Right. Um, yeah, I was thinking the... because they they've got televisions. Um, so yeah. I was thinking. Um, yeah, but but I do. Uh, it presents that harmony of the film, that that kind nature of the film, also is due to the environments, the seaside environments. This is a seaside town, fairly big one, but still a seaside town, and that does something to the pleasantness of it all. And uh, they they don't mind if it's a multi-European influence on this movie because you have both storefronts that says. Um, that are in Swedish. It says Hermode at one point. That's men's fashion. But then you have storefronts like the bakery that have that have German lettering and things like that. So they they bring in inspirations from all over the place. And I think it's uh, one of the one of the exemplary portions of the film is its uh, wonderful, just bright design that then goes in tandem with uh, the themes and the message and the challenges that. Uh, that the movie presents and I always find it wonderful that Miyazaki and Ghibli they were able to connect to kids and adults it's a bit of a magic trick to not to, to play to both and to feel and for adults to feel like that this was somewhat intellectually challenging this journey was um, was meaningful and uh, it isn't uh, cutesy kid stuff just because there's a talking cat here Necessarily, and and that balance. I, I mean, I have no real other notes on that, and no other great way to describe it. But uh, do do you recognize that that uh, his best movies have been able to strike that balance between being being able to be absorbed by adults in a real way, and even by kids in a real way from their perspectives? Can can, can you like recognize that he's been playing to a large demographic without making uh, too childish or too adult? I think he definitely straddles a. Uh you know, a line there that is is kind of fluid. I mean, because you do see in a lot of his protagonists, um, they tend to be female, they tend to be younger, but pressing, you know, or being pushed into adulthood for various reasons. So I think you see this in um, Naushka. I think you see it in Totoro. Um, you see it in Spirited Away. You know, it's, it's this idea that um, ad- adulthood is calling for whatever reason, but there's still a lot of mystery and magic around to being a child and and kind of not wanting to lose that um which you know very often as you see the adults you encounter the adults um you know that they, they they have lost that and so there's this central protagonist who's kind of serving as the bridge um between that and i think that's why it it works for kids it works for adults um, because you know there there's a sense of recognition there, and and I, and also like that they, uh, they they establish the the magic rules of it all that she can only do one piece of magic and that is to fly. So therefore she has to carry stuff. She needs to drag heavy packages upstairs. You know she can't just make stuff levitate and coast. And it, it's a minor thing, but I really like that, that that's a rule that's established that uh, they they don't have a little bit of everything. That needs to be developed, but she needs to focus on. Uh, she she's at the beginning of her training, so uh, th- that means she has to adopt a certain, uh, a good set of morals and ethics, which she certainly does. For instance, I, I love the line of, 
I, I can't make my money doing nothing because some wants to pay for something uh, that wasn't uh, done in time, like a, a pie or a cake that wasn't done in time. So they say, well, you can have your money even though the delivery isn't going to be made. And she said, no, I, I want to do something. I can help out with something else. And that's a healthy attitude to put front and center in a movie that adults and kids watch without it being a PSA. Miyazaki that doesn't stand there looking at us <laughs> on the screen like... I'd like to present some good lessons for your kids. It's just part of the nice flow of the narrative. Uh, and uh, of course, the challenges that eventually happens in the film of her being deflated because uh, she uh, she's insecure in some ways. She uh, I, got a hint, I got a hint of uh, social insecurity and that manifests in anger. So she needs to deal with that. But the, the movie that doesn't take a dark detour as such, but nevertheless, it's uh, it's challenging when she hits a wall that she, when she feels deflated and when she eventually loses uh, powers to some degree. And it's it's heartbreaking without being sugary and melodramatic to 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 see her feel lost without her magic, and it's it's expressive enough without overdoing it in the animation. It's not milked by Miyazaki which I think is great balance to achieve. And whether it's in the book or not, I really, or Miyazaki contributed this through his script, I, I I felt, and I don't know what you felt, that he was in this section where she's lost uh, her powers. I, I felt uh, that Miyazaki was drawing parallels to the loss of inspiration um, and within creativity. and uh, but, but you just keep on creating and uh, make it second nature, make it, uh, make it a habit and discover the pros and cons of your skill while continually making and creating and you'll you'll tell resilient in the process and when that was being spoken of in the movie i I felt like that that could have been miyazaki talking of like answering a question what do you do when you don't have inspiration and i felt that was very proper and nicely communicated again without making it too complex and adult for kids Uh, so he's striking that balance and uh uh, yeah, yes, it's it's only here and it's only one tale, and uh, it would have been cool to get uh, some continuing uh, continuing celluloid, I suppose. But uh, that's uh, what um, hopefully hopefully this reprinting new new translation will trigger someone to delve into uh, translating it and uh, d- d- just put put like Miyazaki and Ghibli blurbs on the book to make it sell. You know, uh, remember that movie that you saw? Here's the part two. And then you get books flying off the shelves that way. Uh, but uh, not my favorite, but it's, it is close to the top. I find it rewarding and healthy and challenging. And uh, it's also easy entertainment, of course, but it's it's not purely escapist entertainment because there is something in there to uh, to latch on to in terms of lessons. And uh, that's a healthy thing, I think. And it stands up to rewatches as well. If you just want to focus on the gorgeous animation, you can, because it is gorgeous. But uh, that's not an area I'm great at um, talking of in depth. So I'll, I'll leave, it at, leave it at that. So one of the things I think that Miyazaki does well with his film is that he kind of picks up with the author's world building. Um, you know, as, as you mentioned, her rules for magic. Now, if, you, if you're not aware, Kiki is um, technically half a witch, um, because her mother is a, is a full witch, but her father was a regular human 
or if this was a Harry Potter world, he would be a half muggle, blood. right? Or, so yes, yeah, so she, that makes her a half blood, which is um, part of the rationale of why she only gets the the one sort of uh, witch power, which is being able to fly on a broom. Um, her mother is famous for potions, but her mother can also fly. And they, I, I I don't I don't know if they kind of really touch on that very very deeply. I know it, they introduce her father in the beginning, and then he kind of shows us shows up at the end. He's a scholar on witches and and witchcraft, um, and you know so that explains a little bit of his background and kind of his relationship, you know, with why he's with her mom, and yes, yeah, I mean. <clears throat> It's interesting because she sees her ability as kind of you know, this fun thing that she can do, and and but later it just becomes like a job for her, and that sets up an interesting parallel with um, the friends she makes, especially Tombo, the sort of central male character who's fascinated by being able to fly, and and is fascinated by her, and 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 really trying to become a friend to her throughout. Um, and he creates this character who's um, pretty charming in in the Miyazaki film as established. But one thing that ends up happening, I think, is that uh, about midway, we start to veer off into sort of what I would call Miyazaki world. Um, because in the novel, um, pretty much every chapter is like a kiki adventure in the town, um, helping out various townspeople with her service and in the Miyazaki film we get maybe one or two of these um, and then we get into one of the things that Miyazaki is known for and that is his fascination with flight and flying machines so you get yeah, top, yeah you know, I had my bingo card out and, yeah. we, and I waited for a flying machine and <laughs> You Tombo, get, what was it? That's you get Tombo's uh, spin bike, um, and then the the big dirigible, and and that whole thing at the end. Um, none of that, which is actually in the the novelization. Now, um, to be fair, I don't know if those uh, adventures would show up in the later books or not. Um, but since this book and and this movie is basically covering Kiki's first year of life in in, in the the town of of Kokiro, and I, I I do believe it is mentioned in at one point in the anime um, on the radio. I think they they taught they they named the town. It is the same town name as in the book and in the live action film. Right. Um, right. Although the way they depict the towns um, is very very different. I think. In the novel, you get the sense that, yeah, it is a pretty large town. They've got the big clock tower. I think um, it's made into a more active, bustling city in Miyazaki's film because, I mean, it's really a major, major city. And it's one of the things that really draws in Kiki because she's coming from this sort of like small village mountainous area. Um, and so she's really fascinated by that. And then you do get sort of this technological mashup. So as you mentioned, they do have televisions, but, um, you know, they're, they're also flying around in, in dirigibles and there's cars of, of various, you know, makes and models. Um, and it's kind of this, this weird kind of temporal mashup of, of where does this fit? It doesn't really fit kind of like the same way 
uh, as you mentioned, you've got shops with uh, different languages going on. Um, you've got different designs in places. So it's really this interesting composite of these are things that I like and that I think are cool as a creator. And I want to kind of put them together in a space and make it my own. And I think he does that, um, you know, very, very successfully. One of the things that kind of stood out in, in this watch was the police officer and sort of the police officer's uniform. I'm like, where did that come from? Is that, you know, is yeah, that... that's definitely not Swedish of that uh, period. I was thinking, did they go to like Italy or Greece yeah. or Turkey or something? Because it's a mission like Stockholm would look that way in part uh, even today. So like the setting is very, very timeless. Uh, those narrow alleyways are straight out of old town in Stockholm. So they um, w when they went in, in the 80s, it, it looked like that. And some portions definitely uh, do as well. So um, they, they capture that well. But but yeah, that uh, the, the police officer officers their their design comes from somewhere else uh, if not someone's imagination he really gives a sense of following along with the rules um that the, the novelist establishes um but then he does kind of give a lot of his own creative license i mean the characters that kiki meets like the artist and um i think the um um the old lady at one point um mm -hmm. they're there Tombo's there, but they're they're kind of uh, introduced in a slightly different way. Um, the artist initially wants to draw Kiki in sort of her, you know, black hat and or, or her black costume, her black witch's costume. She's fascinated by uh, the colors of that. Um, Kiki's delivery of Gigi, you know, that that sort of famous delivery where she she loses the stuffed cat and ends up having to deliver Gigi. Um, that's from the novel, but there's no dog. <laughs> oh, but I, I, is, I, it's my favorite scene in the yeah. movie because it turns out the dog is super chill. Yeah, it's it's and, it's a, it's, uh, it's one of the wonderful. It, it's a wonderful scene, and it establishes some interesting things too. In that, um, you know, the sort sort of that Gigi can communicate with other animals, but. Gigi and Kiki can only, you know, communicate back and forth um, to each other. And that's another part of sort of the the rule building that kind of comes from the books that um, I'll talk about as we get a little bit further into um, the next movie. You know, in terms of other availability, though, um, one of the things we were talking about before the show is that, of course, this is all over on digital networks now. Um, Amazon has it. But they want to charge you like uh, six, fifteen, sixteen bucks for it, and you have to pick: do you want the English dub or do you want the Japanese dub with subtitles? Um, and you know, you kind of have to search for the Japanese dub because the English dub is the one that comes up first. And at, for the same price, you can get it on iTunes, and you will get the English dub with the original Japanese dub as. Um, the special feature that's added on. And that's not, I mean, it's there, it's listed, but it's like not really in big, bold print. So when, if you like, if you're like me and you look down at the languages that are listed for a movie, um, it just says English. So you might miss yeah. that fact, but it's the same price, but you're getting both for the cost of what Amazon is trying to, to sell you. Um, Blu-rays are out there, which feature both, and you can get that for about the same price. So if physical media uh, is your thing, that's the way to go. Or I would say if you've got access, um, iTunes, if you want both options. 
And there's a good video extras on the Blu-ray, including a documentary where they uh, compare locations, uh, including going to Stockholm and going to Gotland. Uh, like uh, when uh, the the broom riding goes awry in the beginning of the movie and she goes uh, into a tunnel or an overpass, uh, they go to that location, for instance. And it's quite nice to see. And you get some footage of the English uh, dub sessions uh, with uh, Phil Hartman and, uh, of course, uh, Kirsten Dunst as, um, as Kiki. And uh, it's a good... Uh, competent cast that um, they they had a good track record. I think yeah, Disney. It wasn't just this fashion statement of uh, we've got uh, Tina Fey, we've got Liam Neeson, and then they they don't put anything in it. I think yeah, they they got uh, good immersive performances out of um, out of those new dubs. Obviously, very preferable versus the more quickly done like streamlined pictures dubs of of old. Um, so in many cases, I picked Disney over. Uh, over the old uh, dubs as sort of my main uh, viewing. Uh, I watched it in Japanese for what is viewing. It was last viewing of Kiki was in English. And it's good. It's fine. And uh, Phil Hartman is uh, fun as the sort of sarcastic droll cat uh, that he is. It fits Gigi for some reason. So uh, despite changing the gender or the age anyway, uh, I don't know if Gigi is like a, a cat boy or, or something, but. Um, Regardless, it's a bit of a change, but I think it does well. And uh, sadly, that was Phil Hartman's last voice uh, acting appearance before he died. So there is that as well. All right, and for our second review for this week, we are going to be talking about Kiki's Delivery Service. This is the live-action film from 2014, uh, coming from director Takashi um, Shimizu. And if you're not familiar with him, as I mentioned earlier, he is the you know, he kind of uh, claimed some fame with the Grudge films, uh, this sort sort of a revival of uh, Japanese-style horror films in the wake of The Ring. Uh, and others, which kind of brought some new aesthetic sensibilities and then kind of got copied by uh, everybody. He's also done one of the more recent um, Resident Evil animated uh, works of late. Um, there have been a couple of those out there. So it seemed like an odd choice to pick him <laughs> for uh, a live action adaptation of what we've, I think we've made the case for as one of the, the most charming um uh, animated films to come out of Japan. Um, and I mean, anybody who follows anime knows that uh, live action cinema adaptations of anime tend to be bad. I mean, there are mm. a couple exceptions out there, but in general, most of them tend to be bad. And my argument for that is that one of the things that ends up happening is that in, because they've got limited budgets they end up having to cut corners or they change things to an extent to really alienate fans of the anime and still not make it good enough for people who might be not familiar with the anime but looking to go in for an entertaining experience. 
And so we'll talk a little bit about uh, that as we go forward. But uh, Kenneth, this was your first exposure to live action Kiki, right? And first exposure to a director. I knew of those movies, the series of movies, but in all honesty, they never really interested me. Uh, I had a decent chunk of J-horror, the Avering series and uh, Dark Water and things. And uh, yeah, no, that was done. I, I didn't need to explore the entire wave as such. So uh, I'm, I'm literally not familiar with the filmmakers, uh, the touches he brings to um, to the horror genre. But I guess you got to leave a uh, dark, dark material behind sometime. And this was a chance to, um, to prove he can do um, something else because there's not a hint of... Uh, uh, like yeah, she's a creepy witch or <laughs> anything like this nothing like that uh but they, they it, it uh they, there's a lot of problems even beforehand like a crutch for me in, in a case like this uh, I, I didn't need this i didn't look forward to what a live action kiki's delivery service would look like but but i suppose since it's always been a popular movie in japan that covers the demographic from young to adult and um, i'm sure there was a some commercial thinking that we can catch that demographic again, uh, update it and make it live with uh, with uh, state of the art special effects and uh, remakes and uh, animated live action adaptations won't go away because the movie industry is an industry, it's a business. And uh, but uh, I, I asked you this, makers, uh, couldn't you have picked less of a challenging hill to climb? Because, uh, I mean, maybe if they announced, we're going to remake My Neighbor Totoro in live action, maybe that would be like the first, no, no. <laughs> so maybe Kiki was safer in that regard. Uh, uh, in all honesty, it's worth a watch if you're interested, because it does so many things differently, especially in the second half, which I gather are from either the filmmaker's imagination or from the later books. Uh, so there's a fair amount of different scenarios in the um, second half involving the same characters. So it doesn't feel like you're watching a repeat of the anime once you get to the second half. Uh, whether you can forget about the anime is up to you. Uh, I For a while I did. So, But, but it, it's merely okay family fair, but not in any way um, uh, special or this new take on the material that... Uh, stands on its own and uh, deserves a rewatch after you watch the anime again. I mean, it's a, uh, it, 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 I want to be kind towards it, but uh, it only works in like uh, stops and starts, if you will. Uh, um, like the first half, I think, uh, I guess resembles the anime and therefore the book a lot closer. So that's where you sit. Like, well, seeing that, seeing that, seeing that too. Okay. Seeing that. And it's, it doesn't involve you. Therefore, uh, that way, I, I, I chuckled at the beginning, by the way, that they um, very specifically states that this takes place in Asia. Like, there's no European hybrid setting here, damn it. Like, shut up, you. We're going to set it in Asia. It's the it's, it's a, this village. It doesn't exist anywhere else. Asia. I don't know why I didn't need to put that, uh, like, uh, at the beginning of the movie. All right, all right, all right. It's fine. It's cool. Just do your movie. Don't be confrontational from the from the first frame. Um I eventually got over the fact that uh, Den, 17-year-old actress, was playing a 13-year-old, mainly because the stories in the second half were new, but it, it really doesn't fit as such. Um, I don't think that, like, the ex that, that she carries like an exaggerated perkiness, necessarily, but would it have, would it have hurt to get uh, an astounding 13-year-old actress to take care of business in this one? 
because um, if you think about it, I mean, I, I had to look up. She's 23 now. So it's like, like six years back. It took a long time. Math. That would have been 70. Um, so I don't know why why, um, why they needed a little bit of ex- extra maturity because I'm sure you can find a good child actress to to do this stuff even even if you can't go on the broom necessarily but um, I don't know I mean I might as well stop there you you, you referenced that you thought the, the age was um, was an issue but like did, did you manage to forget it after a while at least yeah no for me I was not able to put that aside um, it was it was kind of glaring for me because of uh, as you mentioned, the lead actress here, um, Fuku Koshiba, um, she was 17 at the time. And Kiki, this is, it starts out as the Miyazaki film starts out, as the first book starts out with Kiki leaving home and going to the town to do her first year. And she's supposed to be 13 and she doesn't look 13. She doesn't, in my mind, act 13. Um, and I was just thinking to myself the whole time when, especially the first time I watched it, I was like, why, why couldn't they, they get, you know, somebody who was 13, um, or mm. at least who looked closer to 13. Cause she just did not seem the right age to me. And I mean, look, uh, you know, Daniel Radcliffe was 11 when he played in the first Harry Potter film and Harry Potter was 11 in the first story of the book. Now I know that, twelve and uh, yeah, yeah. I know that the ages were, you know, really kind of outsized by the time they got to the last one because, you know, the actors kept growing and it took them a t- took them a while to to make the films. But at least they made that attempt to sort of establish the the character at the right age um, and find an actor who was the right age for the age of the role. And I just was having the same question. It was like, were they trying to make her more mature to appeal more to an adult audience? It just felt wrong to me, um, you know, going forward. So um, to get a little bit more into kind of the story here, it's basically starting out as the same tale. A neophyte witch Kiki has to leave home to train for on her own for one year. And she settles in the seaside town, not city, but town in this case of Kogiro and finds that being a witch in the modern world isn't all that easy. Um, so there's, a, yeah, there's a big establishment setting change here. And again, this is a point of contention. One of the things that anime tends to do is it tends to be big and sweeping and epic and having lots of characters with lots of different nationalities. You see this in something like Attack on Titan. You see this in something like Full Metal Alchemist, um, where they have these deep European cultural roots that are brought in, um, sometimes in character arcs and stories and the way characters look, and sometimes in the architecture and the setting. And then they go to make a live action, and again, they have a limited budget, and they are not going to fly in a bunch of foreign actors um, who look the part and and whatnot, um, because again, they don't have the budget. And so what did they do? They just kind of reduce everything down. And in this case, they say, it's just a small Asian town, you know. Um, and so in this case, in rather than being a sort of a big bustling port city, it is this small sort of seaside village with some outlying islands that Kiki ends up having to, to fly to. 
which I think is fine, you know, given the constraints that they had. It makes it more Japan-centric, and you do get a sense that there are places in Japan that are like this, you know, um, you know, Okinawa and some of the areas that have access to um, outlying islands that are populated, and you've got a very sort of island lifestyle of culture that could be presented, but I don't think they utilize it very well here. It, it never sort of becomes the focus that you get in the Miyazaki film where you get this idea of Kiki's having to make this adjustment from the kind of lifestyle she lived in the rural mountain village to this new big city life, right? Mm. That That's one of the things that she sort of has to take on. And I, I don't get that sense here, really, um, with, with sort of the the culture shock between, you know, the less urban and the more urban space. Um, but, it, you know, it, we asked this question, is there a more daunting task than trying to make a live action anime? And yes, it's trying to make a live action Miyazaki anime, because <laughs> not only do you have the task of trying to do anime and look, it's not just Japan's fault. Okay. Anybody who's watched the Netflix death note knows. Okay. It's not easy to do good anime. Um, the, um, but you know, to take something on that's a cultural icon, like a Miyazaki title and try to make that live action is at least doubly difficult, I would say. Um, because and yet they still try and do, albeit in the West, Akira still got it's a raging still, well that one yeah. and the other one that's out there that's been bouncing around last i heard uh, toby mcguire had the rights for forever and a day i don't know if he still has it um is macross um, aka robotech um that's been out there um that has been you know in pre-production and has been on option for for ages but nobody's taken the leap and i just you know could they do it? Yeah. Could they do it well? I really don't know. Um, because again, it's... Ghost in the Shell didn't work out that well. So I think there's a lesson to be learned from yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Especially if you do something that's been a series and therefore has gathered up a volume of material. Uh, that's that's difficult, of course. Uh, I, I was wondering one thing, uh, because w one thing I didn't like about the live action is the fact that they emphasize more that... Uh, characters will lash out against witches and this aggression that runs throughout the movie. So some characters really hate the witches. I I didn't like. I, I like the kindness of uh, this town that still presented a challenge for for Kiki. But it, it might come from the book, and that's my question, I suppose. But I thought I, I felt a little bit uneasy watching... Uh, the townspeople uh, and the kids running after her, like, oh, you carry a curse. Oh, don't curse us. People being mean to Kiki. I didn't need it. I liked the kindness that was present before, the positive tone across the board that Miyazaki presented while still making it challenging for uh, for, for the character. And uh, again, regardless if it comes from the book, that there is more seriousness here and peril. There's a tale of death and loss mentioned here. So it's... Those alternate routes. Um, the the worst one was the 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 loss of kindness in a way, including in Tombo. Tombo's a little prick, <laughs> almost yeah. throughout the movie, uh, and then he gets redeemed to some degree. And I'll I'll, I'll mention one scene that I really really liked, uh, but uh, it's 
it's at least I I found that it found a groove once it started to pile on the scenarios that were never ever near the anime um, that might come from different books that they smashed together in this first uh, story. So then I got into uh, uh, th- that it became like a watchable family fair. Uh, for instance, the ending with the hippo and all of that. Obviously, that's not in, in, in the anime. And then eventually, you know, she's going to lose her abilities like in the uh, anime. And, uh, you know, coupled with the fact that people are mean to her, that's, uh, th- that is heartbreaking to a degree. That was acceptable by the time we got to that point. And even it, it, it has one standout scene. And I was hoping the movie would be a little bit more magical than that, which is the redemption factor for Tombo. That after she essentially, you know, turns depressed because she can't do anything anymore. Tombo sort of quietly uh, teaches her, like she shows resolve and teaches her to ride a bike and just pushes her to like do it. Not saying it, just sort of pushes her physically and making sure she's taught one thing. She she says she knows nothing. So he's there to teach her one thing. I thought that was wonderful because it's a very sweet scene that doesn't overdo it with uh, the verbal exposition of what I'm doing right now, what I'm teaching you right now. And I I felt like this version of Kiki finally got to me. And therefore, you know, the running time was not a problem because we we got these new scenarios that we uh, that we didn't experience via uh, via Miyazaki's movie but yes it, it was somewhat hard to swallow that it's her against the town and herself the town isn't with her in this one and I found that uh, little, it made me a little bit queasy for some reason because I, I'm so enamored and I'm so in love with the fact that she has support around her but she still has to show the greatest strength herself and in this one essentially I was waiting for the pitchforks to come out so, <laughs> we found a witch maybe we burn her and we didn't. Uh, uh, they, they, we didn't see that in the anime. In this one, people are a bit more mean to her. So that's a long way of saying, does that come from the book? Or are they um, piling that on? Um, is it the filmmakers that are piling that on, that negativity? Yeah, well, this is one of the problems that's a very disconcerting, I think, for um, overseas fans who are not familiar with the um, books. And how could you be? Because you don't have access to them unless you read you know, Japanese books two through six. So um, part of the problem is, is that they, this movie, like the Miyazaki film, starts out with Kiki leaving home, um, you know, some tensions with her mom, and then flying to the seaside town and then setting up her, her business in Osono's bakery. So all that happens in the first year. And then as I've kind of uncovered through a little bit of research um, a lot of what we get in the main plots of this story so this the, the story with the hippo um, the the story with the um, she's asked to deliver a black envelope which she then gets associated with as spreading a curse um, those seem to come from the second book Right. So, mm. but that's her second year. So she's after, after, you know, um, in the novels, she goes home after her first year, visits her mom and dad again and says, you know what, I'm going to go back because I like living there and I like the people there and I like working there. And so she goes back and then she has more adventures in her second year, including the zoo adventure and this adventure where she gets kind of um, blamed for 
that. So that does occur, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's compressed here. So they they for whatever reason, they said, well, we're not going to make a sequel um, and just do the second book. We're going to take part of the first book and then we're going to throw in stories from the second book, but make that part of her first year. Um, mm. So, yeah, the, it's, it's a bit disconcerting. I think it would have been better if they would have said, you know what, we don't want to touch um, uh, anything from the Miyazaki film. We'll let that be the first year. And we'll just do a story that's about the second year, you know. Um, they sure. could have still done the origin. They could have, you know, shown her flying to the town and then setting up her business. And then, you know, a year later, Asona's got her baby and Kiki's, you know, doing stuff and, and you know, having these these new adventures. And I think that for me and I think for international fans would have worked better. Now, maybe in Japan where people have familiarity with, uh, these stories, they that wasn't as big of a problem, perhaps. Um, I, I mean, the film did fairly well. I think it came in uh, third for the month that it was released in terms of box office. So um, I don't I don't think it bombed in any way, shape, or form. But it did uh, come out internationally to negative reviews, and it wasn't um, very well looked on by international fans. So I think that. You know, if you go into this and you you start seeing things that are familiar, like, oh, yeah, you know, this was kind of like how the Miyazaki film starts. And then you get it further into it, you're like, wait, what is this movie? Um, and I think the bigger problem, too, is that it does very little to expand on the world building that the novel establishes or that even um, Miyazaki's film so nicely reinforces. Um, you know, so in, at a certain point in this film, Kiki's broom breaks. And then it's actually Tombo, who, as you rightly point out, is the worst. Um, he goes and he, <laughs> he, he, he like to to switch. That was so. That, that's what made me queasy because it's such a rapid switch from the very social and friendly kid in the anime that just wants to make friends, and here's someone that just is, you know, give him a few more scenes. I, I mean, he, pu he pushes her. He pushes her down. Yeah, it's point. like now he's <laughs> violent towards her. For heaven's sake, it made me queasy, man. <laughs> It's, um, yeah, it's just weird. And then it's so, but he ends up repairing her broom, which I just thought, okay, she doesn't need him to repair her broom. She can make her own brooms. And one of the, one of the things that happens in both the Miyazaki film and in the novel is that she wants, she, she's made her own broom, this sort of sleek, small broom before she leaves home, you know, cause she thinks her mom's broom is like big and bulky and, and ugly. And her mom's like, no, you take my broom because it's, you know, it's good and it's stable. And, you know, it's like, I don't want to drive your car, dad. I want to drive a sports car kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't want to drive your station wagon. <laughs> um, <laughs> but she knows how to make brooms and she can she can make her own broom. She doesn't need him to, to fix her broom. And it's also established that she can use other brooms, you know, that, that they don't, it, her magic may not work as well initially with them. And that's shown in the Miyazaki film. To very good effect, yep. you know. So I, it was like, why didn't you, why didn't you take that aspect of magic that's already built upon and just play with it? But they had to. I guess they had to show that Tambo was not that big of a jerk, even though he pushed her down because mm -hmm. he fixed her broom. Still didn't work for me. Um, yeah. 
but it's I still but think it's, that scene, uh, like uh, that individual scene, is very good actually because she, um, b- before that scene where she's taught how to ride a bike, she talks and quite uninterrupted as well. It's like a very long take of her talking of um, how she feels about uh, this loss of abilities, and he's just uh, listening, and then he stands up and has made a decision how to um, inspire her and to help her and show that uh, there there are skills to be learned. Yeah, and it, but, it was a nice scene to have him. Yeah, to have him uh, redeem uh, through through that scene only. Like he yeah. didn't eradicate uh, the ill will I had towards him. So. But one of the things that stood out for me was comparing back to the Miyazaki film was in in their bike riding scene where she gets on Tombo's big bike with the propeller on front and she's like, oh, I've never ridden a bike before. And then he's like, oh, oh really? You know, this is going to be, this is going to be going. But then as they're riding... Um, and he tells her, he's like, I need your help to go turn the corners. So I need you to lean out. Right. And then yeah. it's because she's used to flying. It's like instinctually, she's like, she's like inches off the ground because she has this understanding of, of, of turning and, and aerodynamics and just the way they work together as a team in that very short scene, even though it kind of, you know, ends in a, in a comedic crash. Um, and they have a laugh about it. Um, I, that just works so much better to me. And I did appreciate him in the live action film trying to teach her um, the bike riding. But then later, you know, he takes his little uh, aerial machine for a jaunt. And then he almost it's almost a tragic crash that he has. So it's like it's like two sides of the pendulum <laughs> that these two yeah. films have, you know. And it's a tragic world to be sure. I mean, I talked about the idea that what you have is this witch going out into the world. Magic is kind of starting to fade. Witches are not, they're not able to do as much magic as they once used to be able to do because of the modern world. And they're making more modern choices and, and that's somehow causing them to cast off their magic in some ways. And Kiki mentions at various times that if she doesn't fly enough that you know she might actually forget how to fly and might lose the magic so she's got to go out and and you know kind of keep her skills up and the idea too of her relationship with Gigi and this is one of the things that's interesting because if if you see any discussions about this film it's often about does does Kiki ever get to talk to Gigi again right because at the end of the film she's lost her ability to talk to Gigi and mm-hmm. one of the things that is mentioned in the novel is that um as a witch grows up, she, you know, her, she will lose her ability to talk to her cat companion because they will, you know, the cat will go on to be becoming a cat and she will go on to becoming an adult, right? And yep. that, that ability is like lost. And it's like, it's so sad because it's like, you know, they're, <laughs> they're buds and it's like, you, you don't you want to hear Phil Hartman throughout your life, like, uh, <laughs> giving you advice. Uh, yeah. Because uh, Gigi is a sort of a bad, you know, is sort of a bad, the bad cop at times. Uh, the, the cat um, doesn't mean words necessarily. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's there to, um, to set her straight sometimes. And I always felt that, you know, it's like from the anime, it's like when he goes and he goes off with the white cat, I always thought, well, he he went and and started a family, and so he's the one who lost the ability, because <laughs> you know he your, he's your he's no longer he's no longer a pure cat, <laughs> as it were. Um, 
but yeah, so so this idea that um, they, you know, the, the magic itself is going away and, you know, she would lose her ability to, to talk with Gigi at a certain point. It's it's very melancholic in, in a sense. Now, I, I don't know from, because that doesn't happen in the novel, at least in the first book. Um, they, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't get sick. She doesn't lose her ability. She doesn't lose her ability to talk to Gigi. So I don't know if that's stuff that comes in later also, but I, mm -hmm. I'm guessing that at least from the novel sense, you get to expect more adventures of, of Kiki and Gigi going forward. And I did uncover that, um, I think in one of the later books, she does actually expand her magic abilities somehow where she can... She starts to learn her mom's potion making skills at a certain point. So, um, because that's one of the things that's mentioned early on is that she was only able to do flying magic, but I guess further novels can, you know, um, expand on that a little bit more. So mm. that's the, the, the other side of this that I think for the live action film, they, they really kind of missed out on was, was working with that world building that was already established and and making that feel like it it's there as a carryover um as you mentioned they throw in this plot with a a character whose sister was a witch and it it's weird because they never really established but i'm guessing that makes that character a witch too and i kind of associated her singing as her witch power um, mm, yeah. because she, you know, she talks about having lost that and then, you know, so, um, Maybe I thought, that's why the song reached through the storm. That's what I, I was thinking. Was a very of, silly, yeah. silly way of clo closing the loop on the singer. Yes. She wants to sing again, but how in the heck yeah, does, uh, those, uh, notes, uh, reach Kiki, but there might be an explanation. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and that was fine. Um, but with that, you're losing again, some of the. Um, interesting characterizations that we get in the Miyazaki film. Whether that character is from a later book also, I, I don't know. I couldn't see any specific reference to that made in the little bit of digging that I was able to do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, overall, as a film, trying to separate it out from that as a film, I think it's an okay film, but really with the shadow of of the anime kind of standing over it, um, I think it's hard to come away from it really without a sense of disappointment. I suppose I don't really have um, any other thoughts. I think we, we covered we covered it um, covered it well. Um, it uh, it got uh, it was never unwatchable, but it got more watchable towards the the second half, mainly again because uh, these scenarios were completely new to me and involving enough because there was some acting chops displayed that made me forget she's 17, she's possibly 13, and that the loss of abilities storyline, plus that bike scene, it, it got to me, and then it found a groove, and uh, then it was over, and uh, it um, it would have been nice, as you, you've explained, if uh, they've taken a chance in Japan that we're all familiar with it. Let's make part two. Live action, it, it's part two. It's our second year in live action. Everybody knows about it. Maybe a montage for one minute. A live action montage, but then we're into part two, and I think uh, that would have been a brave choice. But uh, if it would have worked anywhere, it would have been Japan. 
because uh, uh, and, and those books I gather, uh, you know, they're, they're in the consciousness to an enough degree. I don't know if they're on the on the popularity level of a Harry Potter, but um, certainly it, uh, it would have made sense uh, locally. But um, here it is anyway. All right, and as for availability, um, your best bet is to try to get the Hong Kong release version. Um, you can check, you know, various online stores, and that version will have uh, decent uh, English subtitles and should not be too expensive. It is a DVD-only release, as far as I know. There may be Blu-rays uh, in Japan, um, but you are not going to get any subtitles with that, so... Um, you can check that out uh, if you so desire. To my knowledge, I have not seen it listed. I did search for it on any uh, Western streaming platforms, be it a Netflix or um, uh, Amazon or Hulu. Um, and I'm guessing it's just because it's maybe not viewed very very popularly internationally, so nobody's wanted to, to pick it up, although I think it's... <laughs> Fairly inoffensive for the most part, you know. It could you be... can have it for free. No, <laughs> go away. <laughs> it could be easily thrown into, you know, an international um, listing for for films, um, but uh, it's just not there yet. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. And you have been listening to the Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snowzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to be part of our show, please do get in touch with us via the website at concast.com and follow us over at Twitter at Concast, email at eastscreen at gmail.com and find us on Facebook at East Est West S. Um, as always, please do follow along with Ken and all the stuff that he does over at the Podcast on Fire Network. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Well, uh, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com. All our shows are on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or various other podcatchers. So you'll find us that way. And if you uh, have listened in the past, or if you plan on listening, thank you to the past, and thank you to the present and future. Yeah. All right. And until next time, this has been the East Green West Green Podcast saying, Happy Halloween, and we'll see you soon. Go watch the anime, people. Twice. In one day. Every day. I want to stop talking about uh, this for a bit, and I want to throw it over to you, Kevin. Or, sorry, Kevin. I'm, I'm on the Kevin, wrong podcast. <laughs>